We're in Isaiah 56 together this morning, so if you turn there uh, with me in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. I want to ask you a question, just something to think about with me this morning as we open the Word and as we think about these things. You ever considered yourself an outcast? Yeah? Some people laughed and said yes immediately. Uh, didn't even have to really think about it very much. Uh, consider yourself an outcast. Maybe, maybe even think about it from this angle, some, someone who has been rejected, neglected, despised, and maybe this has caused something in you that you feel unworthy. Uh, maybe you feel like uh, nothing is, is, should be yours because of who you are. Maybe you don't have much self-worth. Maybe you question yourself. Maybe you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread. Could be you. The reality is, whether we feel like that or not, the truth of the matter is that before Christ came... This was all of us. Before you came to Christ in faith, this was you. Before you came to Christ in faith, you were on the outside. You did, in one sense, have this uh, overriding reality about your life that you were not accepted. You are the one to be despised. You are the one to be neglected. And then as we come to Christ we find that that is no longer us, but instead the one who once was despised and neglected and was unworthy uh, is no different except that in spite of us being unworthy, we have now been received by God based on nothing about us at all, but based on everything in Christ. So, I want you to just think about this with me and, and, and how much we are reliant upon grace. And I hope you heard that in the songs that we sang this morning, that we are reliant entirely upon God's grace. Why? Why are we reliant upon his grace? It's because in and of ourselves, we are not worthy of anything God has to give except for his wrath. That is why we must have his grace. As we read in this text today, this reality is going to come through. The first two verses are, in a sense, introductory to us to an idea. And as we read the first two verses, we might feel, and I hope in a sense we do, that inability crash over us. Okay, let's just look at the first two verses. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps, him hand, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Okay, just stop right there. Who is the one who is blessed? Who is the one who will receive the favor and salvation of God? According to this, it is the one who keeps justice and does righteousness, who keeps the law of God, which the Sabbath is representative there, who keeps the full law of God and keeps his hand from doing any evil at all. Is that you? Are you the one who has always kept justice? Are you the one who has always done only righteousness? Are you the one who has kept the law of God perfectly? Always, by the way. Always kept it perfectly. Are you the one who has never done anything evil? Is that you? So, here's the issue. Is that that's the person who is blessed by God. And it's not you. So we have an issue. We have a problem. A problem that we need resolved, right? Now, we know how this problem is resolved. It is resolved in Christ. It is resolved in the gospel itself. But here we have it facing us in this text. So think about how this would have come across to those who were the original recipients of it, okay? Think about the uh, nation of Israel, Judah specifically, okay? Now, they were the, in a sense, at this time, the remnant of God. They're, they're kind of all that's left, in a sense, uh, because 
armies have come and destroyed all that there was, taken them captive to Assyria at the time, and now the Babylonians were coming, leading them away. And so all was coming crashing down, and so here they are, this little remnant there near Jerusalem, and then you have the word from Isaiah come that says, here is the one who will be blessed by God. Okay, just keep, keep justice, do righteousness, because the salvation of God is coming, don't worry, it's coming. And so here's what you need to do. In order to be blessed, um, just never do evil, and you will be blessed. Now, what came swiftly upon these people? Blessing? No. What happened was the Babylonians came, and they won. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They captured and killed many of them, okay? Well, if you weren't captured, you were killed, and if you weren't killed, you were captured. So um, one of those happened to all the people, all the people. So what did they find in this very moment? That they are, in fact, not those who were keeping the law of God. They were not the ones who were doing justice and righteousness all the time. They were not the ones who always, everything they did was perfect and not evil. So... Maybe they heard this and they thought to themselves, and I, I thought about earlier, I thought about uh, the young man who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, said, why do you call me good? Those types of things. And then he, uh, he, he says, love, love the Lord your God, you know, keep the commandments. He said, listen, all, all, all the things that you're saying to me, I have done since I was a child. And so Jesus targets him on that, doesn't he? And he says, well, go sell everything you have. And he went away because... In his heart, there was still evil, right? But he didn't quite recognize it, did he? And maybe, maybe it's, it, and we can perceive that from other passages about these people is that they were a prideful people. They were a prideful people who said, keep the law, done. Did it. Doing it every day. Now, what's next? Keep the Sabbath? Better believe it. We actually came up with even extra laws of how to keep the Sabbath. So we're extra keeping the Sabbath. So what else you got? Never do any evil. Done. I don't do evil. I only do what is perfectly righteous. What else do you have? But then when evil came, disaster came, which is the same word actually in the Hebrew, uh, it's that when these things came upon them, were they shocked? They shouldn't have been because they had this, right? They shouldn't have been shocked that the blessing and favor of God was not theirs to enjoy because they were an evil people. And they should have known it. And why didn't they see it? Why didn't they hear it? Because their eyes were blind and their ears were deaf. Don't forget that about these people. Isn't that what it said over and over and over again? And didn't, when Isaiah took this task upon himself, well, he said, here am I, send me. And so uh, that was not outside of the Lord's sovereignty. So the Lord called him to it. Isaiah said, here I am. And he said, go and tell the people this message. And, uh, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to see what you're saying. They're, they're not going to hear it. Who are the people who hear? Who are the people who see? The Lord, the, the people to whom the Lord reveals his arm. Okay, all this stuff is coming full circle, I hope, in the messages that we've had over this past little while. Um, so when we get to chapter 56, and as we read last, last week about the provisions of God, that there is much that God has to offer, isn't there? And there is much, much that God has to give that our soul might be satisfied, and so we should come and take of all that God has. Maybe one of the questions is, who are the people who are eating and being satisfied? What do those people look like? Are they worthy? Only certain people can come in and partake of the feast, right? What does that person look like? Who are the blessed people of God? Well, here it is, verses 1 and 2. The type of person that's blessed by God is the person that just doesn't sin. So, there we have it. There's our, there's our problem, okay? So, let's just resolve the problem right away, and then we're going to look at uh, two different sections. But first, let's just, let's just continue to think about this together. So, the two issues are, number one, keep the law, okay? That's why uh, the Sabbath is listed here, uh, is to keep the law, keep the law in all of its parts. I just want to read for you a few passages um, out of the New Testament so that we can gain proper gospel perspective on the situation. So I do have all these on the screen, whether you can see them or not, whether they're clear to you or not. Um, hopefully you can take note of those. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Listen to what it says. We ourselves are Jews, 
by birth and we're not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Why does this seem to say that then? Right? Is there a contradiction here in the scriptures? Because this said, the man who is blessed is the one who keeps the Sabbath, who doesn't do evil, who does justice, who does righteousness, all these things, and that's the person that will be receiving of God's salvation. But here it says in Galatians that a person is not justified by works of the law, but instead justified by another way. There's another way. There's a way out here of this issue. And the way out is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it said. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So unfortunately, many times we either fool ourselves or we are maybe held captive to a particular thought ideology that tells us that if you do good things, if you do good works, if you do the things God has required of you, then I will be the blessed person. Then I will be the one that God blesses. Then I will be the one that has a joyful life, a peaceful life. I have the blessing and favor of God on me. Why do you have the blessing and favor of God on you? Well, because I made good choices. Because I decided not to sin. Because I went to church. It's very simple. Because I decided not to do this thing. I did decide to do this thing. And we believe that by either doing or not doing, that the favor of God comes and rests upon us. And this is a scary reality because it's a trap. And it's so false, but it is also right where our hearts, our sinful hearts, we want to keep going back to this. Can we all like agree with that? That we keep, no matter how much we know, we keep wanting to say, but the, the reason I'm having a bad day is why? Well, it's because I, I had that thought earlier. It's because I did this thing earlier. And I, you know, whatever it may be, okay, we, we confuse things because we think that just because we had sin, I'm talking about as believers, as believers, we had sin, and now all of a sudden, God has turned his back on me, and now all these bad things are now, I'm cursed. I cursed myself because I did sin, because I sinned. This is not the gospel. This is false. But we fool ourselves into thinking it all the time. Why is that? This is part of our sinful nature. It's part of our broken, fallen nature. When we speak about the noahic effects of sin, we're talking about the fact that all of our faculties, every part of us is affected by sin. Did you know that, by the way? You know, every part of who you are as a person is affected by the fall, by sin. This includes our thoughts, our emotions, our physical bodies. It, it includes the world itself, right? The physical universe. It includes everything. So why do we go back to this? It's because we're not yet perfected, but we will be one day, right? So we fall back into this pattern of thinking. So you may be tempted, and I may be tempted, to read verses 1 and 2, and it says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast. And you want to obtain the blessing of God in your life? So you think that you have to work to earn God's blessing. Isn't that true? That's one way we could interpret this. But it's wrong. That's incorrect. You can never, ever do anything to earn God's favor. You're incapable. You're an outcast. You're unworthy. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. You know why? Because the New Testament tells us that we are enslaved to sin. You know what a slave does, right? Whatever its master says. And if the New Testament tells us that we are slaves to sin, guess what you're going to do as a good and faithful slave? You're going to sin. That's what you do. And because you're a slave, you have no way out. You have no way to get out. So this is a bigger problem maybe than it first started out to be, right? It's not just that we can't, can't do enough good. It's we can't do any good. We can't earn God's favor. Never. 
the unbeliever cannot, the believer cannot. You cannot earn God's favor. But do you know that there is a way to get God's favor? And you can't earn it? You can't do it? There's nothing you can do to get God's favor? So how do you get God's favor? How do you become blessed by God? How do you eat of God's provisions? Right? Isn't that the question? How does that come upon you then? If I'm incapable, how does it happen? Aren't we glad there is good news? Which is why it's called the gospel. And without bad news, what is there not? Good news. You realize you have to have bad news in order to have good news? Otherwise, it'd just be news. It'd just be neutral. It's all the same. This is good news. Why is it good? Because without this good news, all I had was bad news. And when you have bad news, what do you want? I want some good news, right? So the good news is um, that we have Jesus Christ. Now, let me just read a little bit more here. Galatians 3, 21 through 26. It says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And I hope that maybe in your mind you see that contradiction because it seems as as though it is. So we have the law of God on one part and then we have the promises of God on the other part, but they seem contradictory. I hear maybe on one side, earn God's favor by doing good and righteousness, but then on the other side, I hear other passages saying, no, you, you, but you can't, but yet you can still have the favor of God. So it, there, there's a weird balance here, and I don't know how to understand it, so that's why Paul asked the rhetorical question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, not by the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under a guardian now that Christ has come. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So we become sons of God through faith. We obtain the promises of God through faith. We are justified by faith. None of it having to do with what? The law and works. What about the Sabbath? Because this passage mentions the Sabbath quite a bit. Um, So I'd I'd like to at least... um, recognize its placement here. Now, the Sabbath is representative of the law as a whole here, okay? That's why there are many different types of words being listed here, but ultimately the do righteousness, the do justice, don't do any evil, keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is representative of keeping the law as a whole. But why is the Sabbath in particular mentioned, and how should we understand the Sabbath? It's listed here a lot, and so I didn't want to not address it, okay? So just briefly, let me mention... Jesus Christ and the Sabbath and how we should understand it. Now, if you don't know, I don't want to take too much for granted here. Okay, if you don't know, the Sabbath was the seventh day. And and on the seventh day, just think about creation. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. And it was known as the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest. And so all the covenant people of God were told that they must rest from their labors just as God rested from his on what day? The seventh day. What day of the week is that? That's Saturday, not Sunday, okay? Saturday. And uh, so Sunday is the first day of the week. So how should we as believers understand the Sabbath? As we get into it, I just want to mention for you, as a piece of information that you have, is that all of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the imperative except for the Sabbath in the New Testament. All the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the imperative, something we should be doing, except the Sabbath. It's interesting. Why might that be, and how should we as believers understand it? Colossians 2, 16 and 17, a general concept to take with us. Let, uh, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question about food or drink, or with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Did you hear it? Now, there's a fuller explanation of this found in Hebrews 4. But as a general principle here, it, it says, let no one pass judgment. Now, how do you do that, by the way? How do you let no one pass judgment on you? Well, you can't really stop it, but what you can do is you have, you have an, an argument for your case, right? And Paul is affirming that some people hold to the Sabbath that were Jews by culture, and they wanted to continue their customs of holding to the Sabbath. But then there were converted Gentiles who were not Jewish by culture, and they said, the Sabbath, why do that? And then the Jews were looking at them and say, you Gentile sinners, why don't you keep the Sabbath? That's what God likes. That's what brings you in God's favor. So Paul was saying to them, listen, don't let anyone pass judgment on you about the Sabbath or about holy days or festivals, but instead you should consider that all those things were a shadow of what was to come, and the substance belongs to Christ himself. So in Hebrews 4, what you find is, uh, let me just read a little bit of it. I'm going to start maybe in verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So there are two concepts of rest here. There was the rest of God on the seventh day, right, when he rested from creation. The other rest that's being spoken of here is the people who were entering into the promised land. And that was to them supposed to be rest, right? We've been a a people with no home and we've been wandering around this place forever. When was God going to give us rest? Not only rest from all of our travels, but rest from our enemies, And so they thought that that was their rest. But did that turn out to be their rest? Uh, How did it work out here in Isaiah for them? Was this their ultimate rest from all their worries and troubles and works and enemies? Absolutely not. So if Moses, Joshua, didn't give them rest, there must be further rest to come, right? There is a promised rest coming. So what is that rest? Okay, so that's context. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, those who formerly received the good news, they failed to enter because of disobedience. Do you remember that all the wandering people, not everyone got to enter the promised land? That's what he's referencing. So he says, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, getting to the meat of it here there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay? What is that? So that means that Christians ought to keep the Sabbath, seventh day holy, no no work on it? Is that what that means? No, it says in verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one might fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from all his works as God did from his. Um, how should we understand what's being said here? I had a little more I wanted to read, and I'm just going to skip that for today, for time's sake. But uh, how should we understand what's being said here? Is that Jesus is the ultimate rest for the people of God from all their labors right? So there was a coming rest promised, right? It was, a, it was a day, and that day was a shadow. They would rest from all their labors on that day. But then as time moved forward, they still didn't receive rest. So finally, the reality was spoken that there is rest in Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus Christ, find your true rest in him. He is the substance of that rest, not a day, right? Not a day, um, there are some who still hold to a Sabbath rest, but weirdly, they do it on Sunday. Sunday was never the Sabbath. Um, the Bible never changes the Sabbath to Sunday also. Uh, so uh, the, the Sabbath is not Sunday. It's not the same. Uh, now, there is rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, but where is that Sabbath rest found? In Christ himself. And once you enter into his rest, do you have to labor any longer? No, you find true rest from all your enemies and from all your works. Right? That's good news. Okay, so I didn't want to just 
mention that so much and, and, and not touch on it. So there is our rest. Our true rest is Jesus Christ, not a day of the week. That would be really unfortunate if the promised rest of God was a day of the week. Okay? Now we find ultimate rest one day in glory too, don't we? In Jesus Christ, we find that ultimate reality of that, but we stand in it today in Christ Jesus and his rest. Okay, so the first thing is keep the law. And, and uh, they're talking about the Sabbath there. But the second thing is this, be free of sin. So keep the law and be free of sin. Those are the two things that we find here in our text in, in Isaiah uh, 56. And uh, just quickly on, on these two, and then we're going to move to the rest of our text in Isaiah. But I just want to make sure and establish these two verses before we go on to the rest, because what is following in the next few verses is, is contingent. It's contingent upon a proper understanding of verses 1 and 2. So uh, that's why we're spending a little bit more time on 1 and 2 and not as much time on the rest, okay? So you must also be free of sin. And again, that's pretty unfortunate for us. Why? Can you be free of sin? No. What if you even knew you had a list of all the sins that there were and you kept a chart, okay? And you were very, very careful to not do those sins. Would it be possible for you to remain free of sin? No. Do you know that the scripture says that we are even conceived in sin? And as we are born, we are born children of wrath, like the rest of mankind is. So we inherit a sin nature, and we are born into sin. Okay, that's very fundamental to understanding the whole narrative of the word of God. Is that as sin entered humanity through the fall, that's the story of Adam and Eve, we now are born into sin and we cannot escape it. We become slaves to it. But this passage is telling us is that the one who is blessed by God is the one who is free from sin. Are you free from sin? Do you sin? That's the question in the room. Do you sin? Answer, yes. I hope you know the answer is yes. There's not one among us who does not sin. Okay? I've told you before, if there was one, it'd be Sally. And even Sally still sins. Okay? So, all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners. So we have an issue here. Is we want, why do we have an issue? It's because isn't what we want the blessing of God on our life? Isn't that what you want? At the end of the day, this is the whole point. If you don't want the blessing of God, then none of this matters. Just be in your sin and get his wrath. But if you want the blessing of God, this should matter to you. And you should be very careful with your life that you are pursuing the blessing of God properly and it is not, not through works. Okay? It is not about you being a good person. This is for the unbeliever and the believer both, you understand. Once we come to faith in Christ and we think, I, well, I just, I need to be doing better. I'm just, I'm messed up today or like whatever. No, those are fine thoughts to have. But to think that if you do better, that God will like you better, you're wrong. To think that if you do better, you have more of God's blessing and favor, wrong. That's wrong. You have the full blessing and favor of God on your life already. You can't get any more than you already have if Christ is yours. So this is the error that we must fix in our own thinking. So we, you must be free of sin. So the good news about this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, there's a lot, of, there's a lot right there, right? That's a whole sermon in itself, that one verse. What does it say? For our sake, that is for the believing community, those in Christ, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin itself, even though he himself knew no sin, he was not, sin, he was not a sinner. He was not a sinner. He did righteousness. He did justice. He kept the law of God perfectly. He is the one who got the blessing of God. Isn't that the point? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wait a minute. We get to become righteousness? We get to have a righteous standing before God? How is that? We are sinners and we are held captive to sin, and yet somehow 
we are now the righteousness of God. How is that? How did that come to be? Because Christ became sin on our behalf. Romans 6, 15 through 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you understand that question there? If you have become, this is what we, what it, also what I read earlier, right? Is that are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the answer to that is emphatically, no. So here's an issue we might have, right? You're telling me, I have the favor of God. I have the blessing of God. I am found as righteous in God's eyes. So therefore, what does it matter what I do with my life? What does it matter? I'm going to sin because you're telling me if I sin or if I don't sin, I still have the favor of God. Is that true for the believer? Well, that actually is true for the believer. However, if you continue in sin, it proves something about who you are. It proves that you do not have this blessing and favor of God on your life to begin with. Because if you did, you would have the Spirit of God in you. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, you would not continue in sin because you can't. That's not what we do. So, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, may it never be. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or over obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That's Paul. I mean, whoa, what did he know that we don't know? I have to, he said, I have to dumb this down a little bit for you natural humans. Uh, I, I have to speak on your terms. But he's saying, don't you realize that you once were slaves of sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness. So act like it. Now, should you mess up, and you're not quite the obedient slave that you should be, is all lost? Is your righteous standing before God taken away? Isn't our God a good God? Isn't our salvation great and glorious far more than we can comprehend because of our natural limitations that Paul was so quick to point out? We do have natural limitations, don't we? We cannot fully comprehend, grasp the greatness of the salvation that is ours. As you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, like I said, if we do sin, because we must be free from sin, right? But if we do sin, all is not lost. What we should do is what John the Apostle says, and he says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Have you sinned? Yes. Do you need to confess that sin to your God? Yes. When you sin as a believer, does it remove your salvation and the blessing of God from your life? No. If you continue in sin without repentance of sin, does it prove that you do not have the blessing and favor of God on your life because you don't have the Spirit? Yes, that is the reality of the situation, okay? How do we know a tree? By its fruit. I have an apple tree outside. How do I know? Because they're, they're not good-looking apples. I have to figure that out. But it does produce apples, I have a pecan tree outside. What does it make? Pecans. Yeah, it does. Actually, it makes pecans. Those are pretty good. 
I have grapes outside. They come from grapevines. Now, if you say you are a believer and you have the Spirit of God in you, what are you going to produce? Spiritual fruit. If you are not, it proves that you are not one who belongs to God and you do not have His Spirit in you. Right? Okay. So, keep justice, do righteousness, obey the law perfectly, and never sin. Now, let me pray and we'll be dismissed, right? Uh, luckily, that's not the reality, is it? So I just have a summary statement here, and we're going to move on to the rest of our text. This, if you missed it, this is the whole point, okay? That Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. Jesus has, not you. And he now freely shares those promised blessings with all who have faith in him. Do righteousness, do justice. Can you? Did you? No. Be free from sin. Keep the law. Is that you? Did you do that? No. But there is one who did. Jesus Christ. And all the blessings that are promised, he inherited. Because he is the one who did it. Right? Blessed is the man. Who is the blessed man? Jesus Christ himself. And now that he has obtained the favor of God, what does he do with that favor and blessing? He shares it freely with all who have faith in him. Isn't that good news? You don't have to work to be that one who is righteous. You already are righteous in Christ. You have a righteous standing before God in Christ. This is good. Okay, so now, verses 3 through 8 take our perceptions of the whole situation, and they say, now, okay, so who are the ones, then, who are going to be partakers of all that is being said? Who are the ones who are going to receive the blessing of God? Who are the ones who get the favor of God? I know, I know, it's going to be the really religious ones. It's going to be the ones who they look religious, they talk religious, super clean cut. They don't, they, they're, you know, they don't associate with the likes of me, you know. They, they don't, they're, they're, I, they're going to be able to identify them. Is that not how the Jewish religious leaders of the day were acting in Jesus' day? I'm the one who has the favor of God because I look the part, I act the part, I talk the part, right? Is that what the scripture is about to tell us. Let me tell you what these people are going to look like. So it says in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Okay, let's stop right there. Maybe there's not much significance there for you, but the next uh, several verses unpack this reality. What's being said is, you thought the blessing and favor of God and his righteous standing and salvation were going to come to those who seemingly have earned it. Earned it by birth, earned it by keeping God's status, earned it by being a good person, earned it by being very religious. But now who is mentioned as the one who is a full recipient of the blessing of God? The foreigner and the eunuch. What are these talking about? So let's just look at it a little bit. The eunuch. Two classifications or categories represented, it, represented here, one the foreigner, one the eunuch. And neither group really uh, in the community of Israel, in the covenant community of Israel, neither one received the kind of access to the community of God, to God himself, that Jews who were ethnically Jewish, excuse me, they didn't receive the kind of access that they did. So when you say the foreigner and the eunuch, you're actually talking about two categories of people that seemingly to the eye are not worthy of being included in this situation. So he says of the eunuch first, we'll look at it. And he says, let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. And you might say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying I'm a dry tree? Uh, what did that even mean? Well, for the young years in the room, I'll let your parents explain more about this situation. But we all understand that should you become a eunuch, in a way you become dry, correct? 
And in that way, when you become dry, a dry tree, um, you're saying, I have no inheritance, I have no name, because in, in ba- back at this time, your children and your, uh, your, the generations that would come after you, they, um, they make a name for you throughout generations, right? So probably the worst thing that could happen to you is that you don't have children. Now, not true for the American culture, right? Now, are children a good thing? Children are a, certainly a good thing, but the cultural perspective is a little different. So for them, a barren woman, you couldn't get more disgraced than that, right? And for the man who was unable to have children and he could not continue on his name, that was disgraceful, shameful. So let not the eunuch, though, say that he is a dry tree. Why? Because we're going to find that in God, he has a great name that will last. He has an inheritance, actually. He has something that he thought he didn't have. That's pretty good, isn't it? What does it say in verses 4 and 5? So thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant. We've already understood what this is actually, how we should interpret that, right? I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So in a way, he was cut off in multiple ways, right? And the language is actually speaking to that. So you will not be cut off. Your name will not be cut off. This is not going to happen to you. This will not be you. You will live forever. And you will have something that is better than sons and daughters. I'm going to give it to you freely. If you keep my Sabbath, and if you choose only things that are good, and you hold fast to my covenant, and what we've already understood how we get those blessings through the one who kept them for us, Jesus Christ, right? This making sense? So don't read this with new eyes, but read it with the eyes through verses 1 and 2, which is why we spent so much time there. What do we know about eunuchs at this time? Two things. One, they could not serve as priests. Second, they could not enter sacred places. Do you know that about eunuchs? They couldn't serve as priests. They couldn't enter sacred spaces. Um, There are several texts here that speak specifically to that. Um, You can just make note of those and and read those on your own. I'm not going to take the time to do that right now. Um, But what we see in this is as we read, as there are multiple blemishes mentioned, those who are blind, those who are lame, those who are eunuchs, whether by birth or made so later on, are in a way at a distance, and they have shame, right? How, how did that distance and that shame come upon them? Because God said, you can't come near me. How would that make you feel? All these other people that their bodies are okay. You know, I can't help that I was born blind from birth, could I? But God says, keep away. So how does that make you feel? Right? But God says to them, you are the ones who will be welcome in as well. And I will give you something great. Greater than anything you ever thought you could get. So he speaks to the outcast. Right? He speaks to the one who feels like they don't deserve the blessing of God. And why do they feel that way, maybe? Because they don't. But neither do you. You don't deserve the blessing of God either. Okay, so let's just look at the second category here, uh, the foreigner. Now, the foreigner um, is a little bit different than the eunuch because the foreigner did enjoy many of the benefits of uh, the blessings of the covenant people. So how would this work? So oh, the Jewish community was not only cultural or ethnically Jewish. You didn't have to be born into it, but you could attach yourself to the Jewish community called a proselyte. And the males would have to be circumcised. You, you would have to obey the laws. You'd have to keep the Sabbath. You would, but you could come and attach yourself to the covenant community people of Israel. Okay? So that's the foreigner. By the way, we are all the foreigners. I don't know if there's any ethnically, purely ethnically Jewish people in the room. If there are, I, d- I didn't know. But if you're not, uh, then uh, we're all foreigners. None of us worthy. 
It says in verse 6, the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, doesn't profane it, holds fast my covenant, interpret that properly, then these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, Jesus quotes this passage, doesn't he? Uh, when he goes to the temple and things are happening there um, that shouldn't be happening, he says this should be a house of prayer. The emphasis here in Isaiah is that it's a house of prayer, yes, but it's a house of prayer for who? All people. What's the context there? It literally says all nations, for all groups of people. This shall be for all people, all types of people. Yes, the foreigner too, and so that's why the foreigner here is identified. So we have those who are, have physical things that are keeping them from the Lord. You have those who are by birth just not right uh, ethnically for the situation. He it says, it, it, I'm bringing them all. This is for you. I'm bringing them all. I'm giving you the blessings. But do you know that not every foreigner was actually welcome? Do you know that there was not free access to join the covenant community of God by anybody and everybody. Uh, you can read more about this in Deuteronomy 23, which I, I have the text up there, but uh, it says, no one born of a forbidden union can come uh, to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. That's pretty severe. None of his descendants might enter the assembly. No Ammonite, no Moabite can come to the assembly. None of them may enter forever. That's pretty severe, isn't it? And they say, how can we help it? I didn't choose to be born a Moabite, right? But God is saying, don't you know that one day there is going to come a time when all will come in and receive the blessings of salvation. And by the way, it's not anything that you can do or you can keep, uh, but it's going to be actually freely provided to you, okay? Let's just move a little quicker here. Time is getting away from me. Um... The Ethiopian eunuch preached a uh, message about the Ethiopian eunuch not too long ago. What is interesting about the Ethiopian eunuch? Should be two things. Number one, he's a foreigner. And number two, he's a eunuch, as his name gives away, right? So the Ethiopian eunuch was the first individual convert who was coming. And uh, isn't it interesting what he was reading? Isaiah, and he was reading about foreigners and eunuchs, and salvation came to him. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? All right, let's get to verse 8. I have more there, but I'm going to have to let it go. Okay, verse 8, let's read it. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares... I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The Lord God gathers the outcast of Israel and declares, I will gather yet others besides those already gathered. I'll point out here that in John 10, you can make a note of this. In John 10, 14 through 16, listen to what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then what does he say? I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So what do you see Jesus doing right there? He's gathering them in. He's gathering them in. And so there's, there's two groups here. There are those who are going to come from the ethnic Jews, right, of this fold. And then he says, but you know what? I have some who are not of this fold, and I'm going to gather them as well. And then there will be one unified people of God. And that's how it works. There are a couple points of application here that I, I definitely want to get to before we uh, dismiss for today. So uh, I, I, I just have three, I think. Yes, three. And what I'd like for you to do as we read these uh, three is 
first of all, hopefully you've been able to take down some of those references I gave you today and you can go back and reflect on those. Um, go back and reread this text. Um, but then I'm going to give you a passage here as we end, the last passage out of James, which is going to be incredibly helpful for us, bring some application to the church. Um, but here's a couple of things. First thing to understand of what's being said here is that God is the one who does the work of gathering his people. Who is it who has said that he is gathering people? He's gathering the outcast. Who is doing that? God himself is doing that, isn't he? Is God the one gathering? Does that automatically change our perspective on who it is who is the recipient of the blessings of God in Christ Jesus? Who's the one getting these people together and saying, here, blessing and giving free blessing to God? Who is doing that? God is doing that. Are you doing that? However much we might gather people and share the name of Jesus Christ with them, you're not the one gathering people to the Lord. Now, you may be a worker in his name, sharing the word of Christ, and you may use that. That's true. But should someone have eyes that are opened and ears that are unstopped and hear the message of Jesus Christ, you were not the one who did that. That wasn't your idea. God is gathering his own people. And there's good news to that because he gathered us, right? Did you gather yourself to the Lord? Did you wake up and decide, you know what? I'm going to go gather to the Lord today. Let's all go. Let's change our direction. You didn't do that. You never did that. But should you have ever had a desire in your heart to go to the Lord, guess who did that? The Lord himself did that. You didn't do it. You don't gather yourself. You don't gather others. God does the work of gathering his people. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. What does that mean? Are there any who the Father gives to the Son that do not end up coming to the Son? No, all the Father gives to the Son will do what? They will go to him. Because God is a good gatherer. He is a sovereign gatherer. None of us are sovereign at anything, right? Like Sam talked about earlier. But God is sovereign over it. And so if there are those he intends to gather, guess what he's going to do? He's going to gather them because it's his work. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. What's the drawing sound like? Pulling you in. And no one can come unless the father himself draws you and pulls you. Isn't that true? Well, that's what scripture says, whether, whether you know that or not. Okay, verse two, or not verse two, point number two. We're still in verse 2. We've got a problem. It is only by the person and work of Jesus Christ that anyone is able to draw near to God. I hope you have realized that today in our text. You do not draw near to God. You do not gather to him based on your own merit, based on your own effort, based on your own goodness, based on your own law-keeping. Is that ever going to get you near to God? Ever. It's not. It can't. Ephesians 2, 11 through 15 speaks to this. I'll just read verse 13, but, well, it, it, uh, it starts in verse 11, where it says, Therefore, remember, at that time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were the uncircumcision. Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God. Yeah, that's true. That was us, wasn't it? That's true. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near. How? By your own goodness, of course, and by your own law-keeping, of course. Is that what it says? No. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you've been brought near. That's good news. All right, final thing here. Number three, and I'd like for you uh, to turn with me. This is the last passage we'll go to today, if you would, please. Turn with me to James chapter two, just for a moment. We're going we're gonna to end here in this passage. There's too much. I thought we were doing good by only taking eight verses today. I, it's just too much. Okay, in James chapter 2, I'd like to read this and then draw some, some application, but let me just say, generally speaking first, we should live as people who have received the righteousness and blessings of God. Hasn't that already been pretty much made clear today? 
If you have been made righteous before God and you have received his blessings, then your life should be reflective of that reality. Isn't that true? You just get to live however you want now. Thanks for the handout. Now I'm going to go do whatever I want. Wrong, wrong. Your life is not your own. You have been purchased. Right? Isn't that true? So how might this apply? I was thinking uh, as I was preparing, how might this apply to the corporate body here? How might this apply to us who gather together as the people of God? And it says in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention, listen to this, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, here, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I just want you to go to that place with me in this moment. If, I just want you to imagine that in the middle of our service, the doors fling open and someone comes in, doesn't look like you, doesn't smell like you in any way, doesn't act like you, doesn't talk like you. You say, here, come sit next to me. Here, take my seat. Sit here. Or you hide your face. Say, Ooh, I don't know who that is. You shelter your children, right? I don't know who that is. I don't know that you belong here. What a horrible thought. No one belongs here. In that sense. Hear me in context. Right? In that sense, none of us belong. You didn't earn your way in through that door. Right? So it says, listen, my beloved brothers, in verse 5. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you anyway and the ones who drag you into court? They're saying you, you show favoritism on the rich people because you think that they're the better people. But then he says, don't you realize that it's actually the rich people who treat you poorly anyway? But you want to be like the rich people. You want to show favor to the rich people. That's a human thing. That's true. That's somewhere inside your heart. And we need to get rid of it. Because we think that in some way that they're dressed better, they present themselves better, they have a good education, right? Something like that. Like, oh, I'm going to go be friends with that person. Yeah, see what they have to offer. And you've made distinctions among yourselves as if they are more worthy than someone else. And we are not to do that. We are not to behave that way. We are not to make those distinctions among us. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you, commit, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That's true. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay? Knowing that our God is a God who gathers the outcasts and the people who don't belong, and he makes them worthy through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he makes them blessed through the blessing of Jesus Christ, by faith, not by works, not by anything you've done, but by everything that he has done, who are we to make distinctions then among ourselves? As if you were more worthy. You're not. You're not more worthy than anybody else. In fact, in Paul's words, you ought to think of yourself as less worthy than the other people. We ought to think there's others as more significant than ourselves. That's the true disposition of the humble Christian heart is to think of other people as actually more worthy than yourself. But the reality is that none of us is worthy. So just a couple of things here to take with you, and these should have come across to you, but as we think about it, 
we should be behaving, that is, we should live as people who, who have received the righteousness and blessing of God in a couple of ways. First of all, it should be in mercy and grace and not in law and legalism. Do you know that by nature we are drawn toward legalism? And we have to fight against that? And we put laws and restraints on other people that the scriptures have not put? We don't do that. We shouldn't do that. The scriptures do not allow us to do so. Grace and mercy, not law and legalism. Is your God a God of law and legalism when it comes to salvation? Or is he a God of mercy and grace in Christ Jesus? So then should you not be a person of mercy and grace in Christ Jesus? That you should be transformed by your Savior and by your salvation. So the other reality is that we should be a people in righteousness and purity and not a people in sin and lawlessness. So that's almost contradictory, but it's not if we understand it, right? We are not a, a law-giving people, but we are not a lawless people, right? We, we obey the law of God, but at the same time, we understand that there is mercy and grace to be had. And so we extend mercy and grace because mercy and grace has been extended to us, and yet we pursue righteousness and purity, understanding that our true righteousness and purity can never come from within ourselves, but only from Christ himself. And the final thing is that we should have unity and love and not division and partiality. Wouldn't you agree? Do we desire for this body of believers to be uh, a people full of grace and mercy? That sound good? You like that so far? Righteousness and purity. You like that? I do. Unity and love. Are all those sound pretty good? This is what God desires for his people who he has saved by his own righteousness and not by our own. He has given us his spirit to do so. So we should be living our lives in such a way that reflects these realities. Okay, all that makes sense today? It's a good text. I had more to tell you, but you got the abbreviated version today. And you might think, abbreviated version? Yeah, believe it or not, that was actually the abbreviated version. So uh, I enjoyed being in the Word together with you today. We're gonna pray, and uh, then we're gonna sing one more song before we leave today, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll sing.